Last Handful of Clover, a novel by Wes Mongo Jolly, read by the author. Book Three, The Stone in the Stream. Chapter 10, Parakeet. June 16th, 6.38 a.m. Howard Gunderson stood in the hall outside of Keith Wu's bedroom. He glanced in, but he did not disturb the man who was sleeping under an enormous pile of blankets despite the summer heat. If Keith's sleeping in there, then he's the only one, Howard thought. The truth was, nobody in the house had gotten much sleep overnight, least of all himself. Pill and Michelle were curled up together on the couch downstairs, but he didn't believe they were sleeping. And Howard had been as nervous as a cat all night, thinking that every little noise he heard signaled Justin's return. Or perhaps something even worse. It had been a long night, but however slowly, the hours had eventually passed. They were still alive. And for the first time in hours, as he looked at the snatch of blue sky visible through Keith's window, Howard allowed himself the fantasy that maybe, just maybe, they would get out of this somehow. Michelle had convinced Keith to lie down around 2 a.m., but before that, the four of them had huddled together over the kitchen table, and Howard had told them everything he knew. He told them about Justin, about how he'd learned what was truly happening to him, and to the city. He watched as Keith leaned forward, his eyes wide and hungry, as he talked about what little he knew of Richard Pratt. Keith asked dozens of questions and seemed frustrated that Howard could answer so few of them. But even with the little that he could tell the man, it was clear that Keith felt his hope had been validated. Keith wanted nothing more than to know for sure that what he had been sensing was true, that his dead husband had been watching over him. After Howard was finished and all three of the friends had exhausted their questions, Michelle became adamant that they needed to do what Richard told them to do and flee the city. She wanted to drive to her parents in Ogden first thing in the morning. Even though the news had said that the city was under quarantine, she was absolutely certain that getting out was their best option for survival. And none of the three could believe that the army would actually shoot civilians who only wanted to find safety. Howard wasn't as sure of that as they were. But reluctantly he had to agree that, barring some fresh development with the light of day, getting out was their best chance. That was as long as they actually left. Shortly after Keith left to lie down upstairs, Howard had overheard Michelle and Pill talking in quiet voices in the kitchen. My big fear is that when we wake Keith to tell him it's time to go, he's going to say no, Michelle had whispered. He says he knows we have to go, but is he still going to feel that way in the morning? What happens when it really sinks in that leaving here also means leaving Richard? Howard had slipped back into the living room, his anxiety reaching a crippling level. It was no wonder that he couldn't sleep after that. He shook his head, trying to dispel the memory. Keith was still asleep in the bed, and the light was growing in the window, getting brighter with each passing minute. 
All those worries had been part of last night's terrors. There was nothing he could do now except to shake them off as best he could and be ready for whatever awaited them. Surviving the night has to mean we still have a chance, doesn't it? Howard crept away from Keith's door and returned downstairs. Michelle and Pill were both up now, and Michelle was heating water for instant coffee on the gas burner. If it had not been for the dark circles under all their eyes, it would have been easy to mistake this for just any normal morning in any suburban household in the city. They both looked at Howard as he entered, and he had the uncomfortable impression that he had just interrupted their conversation. It was clear that Pill still didn't trust him, despite Michelle's insistence the night before. But seeing him, Michelle quickly crossed the kitchen and gave him a hug. She guided him to the table and put an empty coffee cup in front of him that matched the one in front of Pill. I was just telling Pill I'm worried we may have waited too long, Michelle said. It's light out now. We should get ready and go. Pill looked at his wife as she spooned instant coffee into four mugs. Should I go down to our house and get Big Bird? he asked. Howard didn't know what he meant by that, but the big man didn't explain. No, Michelle said. Last I saw, the gas was really low, and we don't know if we'll have an opportunity to fill it up. I say we take Keith's car. It's smaller and more maneuverable, and we can stop for gas if we get a chance. Don't worry, she smiled. We can squeeze you into the front seat, and Howard can ride with Keith in the back. What do we do if the roads are blocked? Howard asked as Michelle poured his cup. She shrugged. If the roads are blocked, we'll start walking, I guess. We'll get as far as we can. I'm hoping that the roads north to Ogden may be more open. At least there are back streets we can try. It's not like trying to get out through Parley's Canyon or I-80. If one road is blocked on the way to Ogden, we should be able to find another. What about south? Pill asked. No, no way, Howard jumped in. We'd have to navigate through the entire city and all the suburbs. That'd be suicide. Howard hadn't realized that the TV was still buzzing with static in the next room until suddenly it clicked off. As did the hum from the refrigerator and even the electric clock on the wall, which was one of those silly things with a cat's tail and eyes that went back and forth as the seconds ticked by. The silence that suddenly engulfed them felt like one of Keith's heavy blankets. Michelle stared at the clock for a few moments, as if she was willing the cat's eyes to move or its tail to sway. When it didn't, she said, Well, I guess that's it. I'm surprised we've had power this long. Somehow, Howard had expected the loss of power to be a, a dramatic moment. But when it came, it only deepened the already oppressive silence. Two minutes later, Keith came down the stairs, rubbing his eyes. At least, Howard thought, that's proof that he slept. Lucky bastard. Keith looked at the three of them sitting around the table. Power's out, he said uselessly. He looked at the clock on the wall, now forever frozen at 6.40 a.m. Michelle crossed to Keith and gave him the same hug she'd given Howard, but Keith responded to it as if it gave him life. He dropped his head on her shoulder and closed his eyes and then clung there until Michelle pulled away. Howard thought that the chubby man's eyes looked much clearer, his face 
much more alert. P, we're going to go, all right, like we agreed to last night? Keith didn't answer, but sat down at the table and looked hungrily at the two cups of coffee. Michelle took a minute to make his and then pour the last of it for herself. Howard looked at all four of them, hovering over their steaming cups, and wondered when they would ever have hot coffee again. Rubbing his face, Keith turned to look at Howard. Was there any sign of Richard? I mean, did you get any sense of him overnight? Howard shook his head. No, I'm afraid not. Michelle looked at Keith with some fear on her face. Howard could see that she was still worried Keith would change his mind. Remember what Richard told us, honey, she said, holding her coffee cup in her hands like they were cold. He said we should leave. Howard added, like I said last night, I don't think that the ghost can leave the city, so if we can get out of town, we should be safe. Do you mean from Justin? Keith asked. Howard fidgeted. From Justin? and from any other ghost that may want to hurt you. Hurt us. But if the ghost can't leave the valley, that means Richard is trapped here too, Keith said, his voice flat and unreadable. Howard saw a quick glance pass between Michelle and Pill. This was exactly what they were afraid of. Maybe the big man would have to tie up Keith and throw him in the car after all. Howard prayed it wouldn't come to that. Before either of them could speak, Howard jumped back in. No, Richard can't follow us, but don't worry. He'll be safe here. I don't think the ghosts are any danger to each other. Only to us. Maybe we can come back here when things are safer. He could sense Michelle's grateful eyes on him. To all of their surprise, Keith got to his feet. Howard, come with me, he said over his shoulder as he was already moving out of the kitchen and toward the front door. Keith, wait, Pill yelled, but the man was moving fast on his short legs as if he sensed someone might try to stop him. He was at the front door and unlocking it before any of them could even get up from the table. Howard was the first to follow Keith outside onto the porch where he just stood perfectly still, looking around as if he was a spaceman who had just landed on an unfamiliar planet. He was sniffing the air and looking at the yard and the quiet street on which he had lived for a decade. Pill and Michelle collided against each other as they rushed through the door behind them, and then all four of them were standing on the porch. Only Keith looked as if he wasn't afraid. He looked curious and cautious, but he didn't look terrified. The other three were looking around as if they expected a zombie to jump out of the bushes at any second. Everything appeared to be so normal in that moment. Other than the smell of smoke, the air actually looked cleaner than it had the night before. The sky was blue, and the street looked empty. Slowly, Keith walked two steps forward, and then down the three steps to the concrete pathway that led to the street. Keith, no, don't, Michelle whispered hoarsely, but Keith didn't appear to hear. At the edge of the sidewalk, Keith spoke without turning around. Howard, do you sense Richard? Anywhere at all? Although he thought being out here was a terrible idea, Howard had to admit that 
there didn't seem to be any sign of danger around them at the moment. He walked down the concrete steps and stood behind Keith's shoulder. No, I don't sense him. But Keith, it doesn't work that way. It's not that I sense the ghosts. I actually see them. It's not telepathy. I just see them the way I would see anybody else. They just look normal. But he's not here. Keith, I don't see anybody but us here right now, alive or dead. From the porch, Michelle's voice sounded much farther away than she actually was. Honey, we should really go back inside. Keith was still looking around. The neighborhood was silent, and everything felt so peaceful. There were actually birds in the trees, and Keith looked up at them for several breaths, as if he could feel their chirping songs on his face. The morning breeze shifted and was now coming from the north, bringing with it fresher air. It smelled deceptively clean. Is it possible it's all over? Howard wondered. Keith was looking down now at the street just past the sidewalk. He took another step forward so he could see the gutter, and for the first time Howard noticed there was a small, thin line of red that was trickling past the house, only to disappear down the storm drain to Keith's right. Slowly, Howard and Keith both turned their heads to the left and followed the red stream up the street. There, in the gutter, they saw them. There was a mother and a small child, dead, crumpled together in a heap next to the right front wheel of a Chevy Impala. The baby was in a child carrier, still strapped to its mother's chest, papoose-style. Both of their heads were shattered, and blood was running from them, into the gutter, and down the otherwise clean suburban street. Strangely, there was a brass cage on its side next to them, and in the cage was a yellow parakeet, its feathers splattered with blood. The bird was perched on a stick that was now sideways in the cage. Even as they watched, it continued to slowly preen the blood out of its feathers. It didn't sing or squawk, but in the silent air, Howard could even hear the feathers as they ruffled. While Howard was looking frantically up and down the street, alert for any signs of whoever or whatever had killed the mother and her child, Keith walked the ten steps up the street. Without a word, he bent down and opened the door of the birdcage. Howard was reminded of the dog that he had loosed the night before on his way to this house, and how it had run frantically to the west as if it too was seeking escape from this valley. The bird preened a bit more before realizing that the cage was open. Finally, it fluttered to the cage door, perched there for just an instant, and then flew into the brilliant blue sky. The last Howard saw of the bird, it was disappearing into the tree where a half-dozen other birds perched and sang. And then, in a flurry of wings, the entire flock was alight. 
Howard couldn't pick out the yellow parakeet in the flutter of wings that disappeared over the house across the street. But he knew it was there. Michelle and Pill were behind Keith now, and without a word they each took an elbow and guided him back toward the house. There was a look of something between despair and triumph in the chubby man's face as he passed Howard and walked back toward the house. On the porch, Keith stopped and turned to look once more at the blue sky. Howard could see there were tears in his eyes. If we leave, I don't think we'll ever come back, Keith said. When none of them answered, he continued, Okay, we'll go. Pill folded Keith in his arms, and Howard could hear him muttering under his breath something that sounded like, Thank God. Hill wanted to fill the car with food and water, and Keith wanted to gather some photo albums. But Michelle only wanted them to hurry. It was clear she meant to take advantage of Keith's decision and go before he could change his mind. And so, in the end, they took very little. The only thing Howard took was his crowbar, which he had left on the back porch all night, afraid that having it would alarm Hill. But now he went to retrieve it. When he came back into the house, he was surprised to see Michelle dialing her cell phone at the dining room table. She hit redial two or three times, cursing under her breath. But then her face lit up when the call actually went through. It was clear she was listening to an automated greeting, and Howard noticed that in her hand was the card that Carla Grayson had left with her personal cell phone number on the back. As Howard left to help Pill, he heard Michelle begin to leave the detective a message. Detective Grayson, this is Michelle Kalani. I have to make this quick because we're leaving the city. Or at least we're going to try to. But you need to know what's going on. This isn't a virus. And it isn't a chemical leak. It's something much more terrible. And I know you're going to think I'm crazy, but please, just listen. Howard didn't stay for the rest of the call. You're listening to The Last Handful of Clover, a novel by Wes Mongo Jolly. If you're enjoying this audiobook, please consider supporting the author on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Wes Mongo Jolly. And for more information, check out the author's website at wesmongojolly.com. That's W-E-S-S-M-O-N-G-O-J-O-L-L-E-Y.com. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more episodes.